Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 108th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is do's and don'ts of a 30B6 witness deposition. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Thanks to our sponsor, Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account at any time at logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash LTN. Today, our guest is Tom O'Connor, a nationally known consultant, speaker, and writer in the field of computerized litigation support systems. Tom's consulting experience is with both small firms and complex litigation matters, where he has worked on several major cases, including the BP oil spill litigation in New Orleans, as well as national opioid litigation matters. It's always great to have you with us, Tom. Well, thanks, John. Great to be here. Always a pleasure to speak with you guys. I don't get to see you as often as I used to now that I'm semi-retired as I like to say, which means I'm just, you know, <laughs> retired and looking for work. <laughs> well, we're, we're having a tough time trying to retire. Uh, so yeah, both exactly. of us have problems on opposing ends. <laughs> I gotcha. I totally understand. But but it's it's great to be talking with you today. And, the, you know, I, I'll be the first to say I didn't know a heck of a lot about 30B6 witness depositions. John's taken part in a couple. But I was reading through all the blog posts that you did. And, and for those who are listening, there's six of these posts on the do's and don'ts of a 30B6 witness deposition that you can find at cloud9.com slash e-discovery daily and they're they're great print them all out put them all together and read them in one sitting and i think you'll come away with a much better picture of of what the deposition looks like so tom tell me is there some major issue here one overriding issue that presents problems in these depositions yeah i i think the general problem is is really the way the the rule is written which is that the party propounding the deposition uh, gets to make a request, and then the responding party can designate someone to testify on behalf of the business entity. The requesting party can't specify a particular individual. In fact, most people take the position they can't even specify the position of the uh, testifying party in the organization. Uh, it, it's commonly held by responding parties that it's up to them to produce for the deposition the most knowledgeable person in the organization according to their interpretation. That is, anyone who, in their feeling, uh, is able to represent the organization's knowledge. So that means specifically it's not somebody with personal knowledge. And so you get an awful lot of wiggle room there, um, depending upon how the uh, the request is drawn up and, and where in the in the in the proceedings, you know how soon you're ma- you're making that note. You know, part of this, just real quick, part of this is 
the, the real shift in in the way we handle litigation since we've we've thrown ESI into the mix. It used to be that you you'd go into a deposition not knowing a whole lot and query somebody, even a 30B6, and then start throwing out requests for production, or even in the original deposition notice, ask them to bring documents with them that you start to review. But now with the rules under ESI, you know, we get the meet and confer early. We get document exchanges going on very early. It's, you know, it's very common that a lot of documents have been exchanged before the uh, 30B6 takes place. So things have kind of been stood on their head. And um, and so the, the fact that there's some ambiguity about who gets to testify can really lead to a lot of problems. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail in a second. Well, Tom, who do you typically work with? Is it the client that's that's taking the, the deposition or those that are preparing for a deposition? And, and what are those differences? Well, I, a little bit of both. I think I would say um, probably a little bit more on the side of propounding uh, the party taking the deposition. But that tends to be because in many cases, especially large document cases, those are the plaintiffs. And the defense, including if it's a large corporation, will already have their own expert, if you will. They may have internal expertise uh, or they may already be working with a, with you know one of the large national e-discovery companies who have a uh, plethora of experts on on call day and night um, that they can bring to bear on a case and and so uh, I'd say there's a slight preponderance on my part to be dealing with the party who's requesting the deposition, um, but usually you know the bigger question is I'm called in most normally when there's a problem with the document production. If the parties are getting along and it's people who are experienced in handling ESI and doing these sorts of matters, you know, the, the, the 30B6 may not be problematic. If the parties aren't getting along and there's a question of how documents are going to be exchanged, often because of an error that may have occurred or sort of a misunderstanding that may have occurred at the meet and confer about how things were gonna be done, then all of a sudden I'll get called in. And so it, it really depends more, not so much on the parties as it does on how things are going in the case. And I'm sure you guys have seen this. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of folks in large ESI cases where they get along all right. Things, you know, things are handled professionally. There's an equal number of people who is not so professional and things get a little testy. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we get a good share of the testy ones. Right. Uh, it's exactly. always funny how the the experts are usually um, pr- pretty calm, but the lawyers are frequently not. <laughs> That's correct. I, in fact, I had one case. It was, it was situated here in New Orleans uh, several years ago, but it was a very large case that they had tried. The parties had tried to go for a class action. The judge rejected the class action. And then, of course, there was, you know, the judge, I think, regretted her decision a year later when all the cases are kind of being given to her court anyways. Um, and uh, so she's <laughs> she's dealing with like 50 different actions. So in, in any event, she had a large status conference and she had to use the courtroom. There were so many parties. She literally had to use the courtroom for the status conference and the lawyers were just going at it. They were just, you know, <laughs> screaming and yelling and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it was just awful. And at one point the judge had set the, 
the two tables for the party. She pulled them together and had the main players there. Myself and the expert for the defense was uh, Chuck Kellner, who was with D4 at the time. And luckily, Chuck and I knew each other and, you know, worked on matters for a number of years. And at one point, the judge just literally slapped her hand on the table and said, enough. You know, everybody just be quiet. And she looked down at the end of the table at Chuck and I and said, can somebody in this room, and she paused dramatically, please explain to me in English what the heck everybody is talking about here. <laughs> so you're exactly right. The, the experts often get along far better than the parties do. <laughs> yes. Oh, indeed. We've seen much the same. I, you know, I think in, in a lot of these uh, depositions, there's a lot of tactical maneuvering going on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you're on the questioning side, how do you determine if the witness is truly qualified? Well, that's the, that's the real problem because you're, you're getting into it. You, you, you know, obviously under the rules as we have them now, you can't do that until you start questioning and and so what I advise is there's a, a serious amount of questions that start in with what the person does, what's their structure in the organization, um, you know, how do they prepare for this? And you have to have some really, really detailed questioning at the onset of the deposition to see if they really are a person who understands this. And first and foremost, in my mind, is are you the person who really handled this information in the day-to-day business or are you more of a, uh, a supervisor? And you can usually tell within about the first hour if the person is um, really has a, a great understanding of the material that they're discussing uh, or being asked about. But it's difficult. It's like you know, slogging through the through the muddy water to try to get down to the creek bed to go fishing. It's just it, you know, it, it it can be difficult. It can be very difficult. Along those same lines, Tom, how do you determine if the person being deposed is is really prepared at all? Well, it's it's that's a great question, and it's really part of that continuation of that same discussion or that same answer that I just gave. You you want to know really what do they do? You know, I I would ask my people to start with you know what's your role in the organization, who do you report to, um, who do you supervise with regards to the subject matter of the deposition itself, how are you situated with the matters that are relevant to this deposition? Did you just get reports about what's going on? Did you have to prepare for this or were you in the trenches? And if in fact they were they were not, then you can start to zero in on so how did you prepare for the deposition? How how did you come to understand uh, about this particular type of information? Did you get reports? Did you look at the weekly, daily, weekly, monthly reports that are generated regarding this information, exactly what steps did you take in order to get yourself prepared for answering these questions? And so really what you're, what you're trying to do is figure out what we discussed at the onset. Is this a person who really works with the material that we're talking about, whether it's actual ESI, are they an IT person? Do they work with the hardware? You know, what's their role? And do you really have a hands-on understanding of what all this is, or were you simply designated as the corporate person, even though they're not required to have personal knowledge, what you're really trying to do is get at, do they have any degree of personal knowledge, or have they just been stood up as the corporate representative to answer this? 
Well, so you said in the first hour, you usually get some kind of sense of where you are. So suppose you say, okay, this person is a yitz brain, doesn't know diddly squat, uh, no way, no way competent to be here. Um, so what, what, now you've made your judgment. This is not a qualified witness. You've, you're concluding that. So what do you do at that point? Is that an objection that you've raised before, Sharon? This is a ditz brain. <laughs> the the yitz brain objection? Was that on the record? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's actually a good I only point do those objections. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I said I was just going to say I only make those objections on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and I was going to say much of of this part of the of the depth often occurs off the record. Usually, of course, I'm not. I'm I'm there assisting my client, uh, which means I'm not actually asking the question. So we prepare. And then oftentimes, uh, you know, we'll go out into the hallway during a break and uh, go over some material or I kick them strenuously under the table when somebody answers a particular question to indicate that they should focus on that. But a lot of this goes on off the record. And, you know, as you know, depositions can be uh, a little bit more informal. And uh, again, if the parties are, are getting along at all, you can go off the record and say, well, you know, I want to do this, or I'd like to go there. And if the other side is not necessarily overly antagonistic towards you, you can try to focus that. But that's often difficult to do. But really, the big question is, what do you want to do? If you've decided that they're not really up to, to snuff, you know, you've got a couple of options. You could adjourn the deposition, and then you could do one of two things. You could uh, say you're going to bring a motion to compel the appearance of somebody else. You're going to, you know, you just tell the party, the other party off the record, look, this, this isn't working out. I don't think this person knows. Um, do you have somebody else you can stand up and, and see what they're going to do? If they're completely uncooperative, and, and by that I mean the, the party and, and not the witness, you know, you could bring a motion to preclude them from introducing any testimony on this particular area. Um, you're going to end up in front of the judge and say, look, we have a problem here and they're just not prepared to bring anybody in who's really testifying, that's going to lead to, of course, an extended motion practice in front of the court. And one judges are not particularly interested in having appear in front of them, but that is your other option. So it, it's tough. It's tough if you have these sorts of situations. And I think, you know, we'll talk about maybe a couple of resolutions to this before we wrap up here today. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Ten years ago, e-discovery meant lawyers packed into a basement, fumbling with complex, slow software, wondering where their lives had gone wrong. Today, not much has changed. That's why Logical is putting an end to e-discovery. Logical is simple, powerful, instant discovery software designed to make you hate document review less. Create a free account today by yourself with no human interaction at Logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. 
Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is do's and don'ts of a 30B6 witness deposition. And our guest is Tom O'Connor, a nationally known consultant, speaker, and writer in the field of computerized litigation support systems. And of course, our friend. So, Tom, you know, hostile witnesses, we've all seen them in the movies. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> you and I have seen them in the trenches uh, and John as yeah. well. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, there's nothing uglier than a witness who just is downright hostile uh, in the face of your questions. So what yep. do you do then? Well, there's there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, of course, you can attempt to ridicule, ridicule them on the record and, um, you know, make them uh, appear like that they're being hostile. I don't think that's particularly helpful, especially in terms of moving the deposition forward. I think the first thing is to try to determine why they're being hostile. You know, there's a couple of different reasons. I mean, one may be, as we've talked about, that they really don't know a whole lot about the subject matter, that they've been selected by the company to be the representative. Maybe it's not something they do a lot of hands-on work with, and they'd really rather not be there. And so, therefore, mm -hmm. you know, they're defensive and hostile because they'd really rather be anyplace else in the world except sitting there answering questions on the record. So if you can try to put them at ease, if you can determine that it's that sort of a witness, you know, a couple of questions about, look, we're not, we're not trying to put you on the spot here. We're just trying to, you know, find some information. If you don't know, that's it's okay to say that, you know, it's all right to say, yeah, I'm not real clear about that. Or it's all, it's all right to say, you know, I'll get back to you on that. So, you, you know, if it's a, if it's an uneasy witness, maybe try to put them at ease. And that goes a long way. Sometimes it's a person who, and this is the one that I see an awful lot, they're hostile because they think they're the smartest bear in the room and, and they feel that <laughs> some of the questions being asked are beneath them. And, it, you know, they almost feel like they're having to explain something to it. What was that line in, in the movie Philadelphia by uh, Denzel Washington? Explain this to me like I'm a six-year-old. Um, yeah. You know, they feel <laughs> Good put line. upon. Yeah. They feel put upon that they've had to, to take time to explain something to people who they don't feel are up to their, not necessarily intellectual capabilities, but training about technical issues. And unfortunately, that can be exacerbated by sometimes, you know, attorneys who don't have a great deal of uh, technical background asking the questions. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, well... I don't understand that. Can you explain that answer to me? And then you get this hemming and hawing and, um, or, you know, loud, exasperated sighs, like, oh, yeah, so I have to explain <laughs> to you how, how the alphabet works, that sort of thing. So that, that can Again. often be part of it. There's not much you can do about that. I mean, you know, all you can say is, you know, sorry, Mr. or Ms. Witness, um, you know, that, that's one of the reasons we're taking this deposition is because I don't have that degree of technical knowledge that you do. And we do need you to explain this to us like we're six-year-olds because, you know, we're going to perhaps be using these explanations in front of a judge and or a jury who also won't have a great deal of technical knowledge. So we do have to sort of reduce this to the, you know, the least common denominator, if you will. Um, treat me like I'm the slowest kid in the class because, well, frankly, I am when it comes to this sort of information. And, and I'm sorry that, you know, that's, that's the way it is, but that is the way it is. And, and secondarily, we, we need to make sure that we do understand. We don't want to misunderstand 
anything that's going on here in the technical realm. Um, so that, you know, everybody's on the same page. So you, you just have to sometimes, unfortunately, grin and bear it with the often highly technically skilled individual who's explaining something to a not so highly technically skilled individual. Then the third example, of course, is if somebody's being hostile because there is, in fact, a strategy uh, of not providing information. Uh, far be it from me to say that I've been in situations where, you know, witnesses will and parties will be attempting to not be forthcoming in uh, providing information, answering questions about information. But you come across it. And I think in, if it's that sort of a witness, if the hostility is because of that, um, you can be a little bit more aggressive and take the position that, OK, you're required to be here. You're required to answer these questions. I don't feel you're answering the question satisfactorily to me. And, you know, I think you probably heard attorneys do this all the time. Well, you can either do this or we can just adjourn now and go down and talk to the judge. And unfortunately, yes, sometimes, you have to, <laughs> right, some, sometimes you have to throw that thread on the table to try to move things forward. So uh, I think the big thing is to try to at least understand at the beginning uh, what the reason for the the hostility is, and if it's something that can be dealt with or, or turned to your favor, or if it's something that's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's something you're just going to have to deal with in it, if not hostile, certainly an aggressive manner in response. Tom, on a, on a different subject, when, when we're talking about these depositions, do you, what about the subject of preservation? you bring that up at all? Oh, I recommend that that be brought up immediately because uh, if it hasn't been spelled out in the notice uh, of the deposition, it's, it's going to be relevant to the proceedings. Um, what is the preservation policy? Is there a written preservation policy? Do you have a copy of that? Uh, you know, how was it implemented in this uh, particular case? Has it changed at all over the years? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, absolutely, I think preservation has to be uh, on the table, especially in the federal arena with the rule changes, the most recent rule changes, that it's nearly impossible, if not downright impossible, to get sanctions for spoliation unless you prove that there's been a deliberate attempt uh, to spoliate, that there, you know, if there's a preservation policy, it hasn't been followed deliberately with an intent to deprive you and the information isn't available anyplace else. So I think preservation is central to deciding what's going to happen after the deposition is over. Absolutely. And what, what other kind of questions would you ask? What else is important? Well, related to preservation, I'm, I'm always curious, and it's sort of a roundabout way of of getting at something you asked earlier about the, the how do you know when the person's prepared? I always like to somehow get in there. When did you first know about the dispute that is at the heart of this matter? Especially if it's say an employment record, uh, an employment uh, matter, and the individuals in the IT department is you know is as both of you know the the standard in the federal courts and is followed in many of the state courts is that the duty to preserve comes up when you knew or reasonably should have known that there was a likelihood of litigation. And I always use the example of, of uh, you know, if I'm working at a sh at that Bollinger shipyard here in, in New Orleans and one of, and I'm on the line and one of the guys on the line says something about my ponytail and, and I make a complaint to my shop steward or my foreman about that. Is the company reasonably aware of the likelihood of litigation? 
And then I always escalate it. Well, what if I go to the HR department? What if I go to the local office of the EEOC? You know, at what point does the company know that there's something going on that could lead to litigation? Therefore, their preservation duty has been triggered. So I always try to get that out with the witness, right? When, when did you know that there was something happening here? And then, of course, that dovetails with the question about preservation. Do those two sync up? Uh, did, in fact, the person say, oh, yeah, everybody in the shop was talking about the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Laura Zubalike, uh had been fired and was complaining to the company for months before she'd been fired about discrimination. That was just, you know, well known to everybody in the organization. Wow, that's, you know, that, that has obviously a bearing on what happened with the information and the preservation duties and procedures that were followed. So I do that. But all of this kind of floats back to how do we set this up? Given the, the fuzziness of the current standard, you know, how can we do some of this ahead of time? And I think that goes back to drawing up a very, very uh, specific request for the deposition, right? You can't specify a person, but you can certainly be very specific about what it is you're going to ask about so that it becomes harder to stand up a witness who's just a generalist, so to speak, who's any corporate representative who's been uh, given some uh, general instructions and uh, some briefings on what to do. If you make the request for the deposition very specific and discuss the scope, uh, then um, it's going to make it more likely that they'll produce somebody who can answer those questions, or they're going to object to the to the notice, and you're going to get in front of the judge about the topic up front, which is great. To my mind, that's a win because the judge is not going to want to waste time uh, with a, a deposition that is going to end up in front of him or her with an argument about it, and, and will probably give you some guidance about what's going to be allowed. So I try to make that as as specific as as I can at the front end. Then you you really can hopefully get a much more capable witness. You know, Tom, in, in that very interesting and long answer, I was struck by the fact that you, you mentioned the ponytail. So for our listeners, and this is completely re related to nothing, this is a podcast with two men and one women, woman, and the only one who doesn't have a ponytail is the woman. So there's your visual for today. You know, when you, when you asked me to be here, when you most graciously asked me to participate in this, I was thinking, are John and I the only two guys in our, in our profession left with ponytails you know there used to be <laughs> several others bill bites yeah. back in the day at pro law and i remember he cut his and uh craig roy who uh, was with right. a, down in florida. a it director yeah. down in florida he's not in the business anymore he yeah. went to work i believe for a, a brokerage house or a real estate company or something but he cut his ponytail before he had left as well and lincoln mead who really should have had a ponytail if he just you know used his rubber band the hair was long enough he doesn't look so much like a Viking warrior if you put it in a ponytail. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's not as, he like he as, likes the he likes the warrior look yeah. for sure. Obviously, Tom, I am attracted to men with ponytails, so please do keep yours. All I right. like the look. Oh yeah, no plans to have it go. <laughs> me, me either, Tom. <laughs> Given our time here, Good. John, I think we can maybe just ask one more question of Tom. Sure. Do you want to ask the final question for us, John? Because I've been involved in, in, in some of these 30B6, you know, depositions as well, because uh, at yeah. least our clients have asked me to, to act as like the, the BS factor. Has that been kind of yeah. your experience as well? Do you tell your clients that you consult to that, boy, you really should be there? Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Or as I said in my notes in response to these questions when we first discussed discussed them, hell yeah. (laughs) Partly because, and John, I'm sure you've seen this, you know, we have a certain amount of technical background and understanding. And so we can, we can figure out that BS factor. We can tell if somebody Mm -hmm. is giving an answer that doesn't make sense. And sometimes it's just because they don't know. But still, you want to be able to, as I said, kick kick your guy under the table and say, no, 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 that that can't, you know, that that doesn't pass the smell test. It kind of relates to um, uh, the great example, which would have been, yes, at one point, one of my favorite stories was I was at a depth like that where I was there, and uh, it was multiple people. It was the same case that I mentioned earlier with the judge and the multiple parties, and the the IT director for the company was being less than cooperative. We found out later it was because they had in fact literally bought several programs like their HR program and it was all installed and he didn't really, you know, he didn't know anything about it. He didn't know how to run it. And and the question that came up was, well, we'd like to run some queries in this SQL database that you have um, to get at some things. And his response was, well, we can't run queries on that database. Now, the individual sitting next to me was the <laughs> IT expert from the EEOC who who nearly died, you know, when he was drinking, he was, happened to be drinking a little bit of water at the time and started to strangle himself on it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I wrote on a notepad and passed it to the attorney, ask him what SQL stands for. <laughs> and, and he didn't know. And so then it became clear that, as we said earlier, he wasn't being hostile or evasive because he was trying to be deliberately obtuse. He didn't know what it was. They had bought an SQL. He thought it was a brand name, right? <laughs> and, and so, yes, if if we weren't there uh, in the room to see those sorts of things, that might go by the boards. And so I, I think our presence is absolutely essential. Uh, when there's an IT person being questioned, yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Tom. It is invaluable to do it. People sometimes resist spending the money, but I think that the money is well used to that. We both want to thank you so much for being our guest today. This is always like being in the clubhouse, uh, you know, with people we've been <laughs> in the clubhouse for, for a very long time. Uh, we won't right. mention how many years that Let's is. Let's not but, talk about that. It, yes. it's, <laughs> no, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll dispense with that. But, you know, I love the fact that you always have a uh, an unpolished, raw view of what the world is like and you're never afraid to express it in exactly those terms uh, and that's useful especially in a podcast scenario you might not do it in a deposition but it, it, no. it does liven up a podcast for sure so thank you for Good. sharing your expertise and thanks for your many years of friendship well thanks for having me here I, I truly appreciate it great talking with you guys again and hope to see you in person soon well that does it for this edition of digital detectives and remember, you can subscribe to all of the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.